Good morning. We will go ahead and get started here. We're continuing our study in perseverance from Hebrews. It's good to be with you all again this week. I missed being here last week, so I'm glad we can keep going here today. Just to call back to our minds where we are in our study right now, we're still in Hebrews 2, and we're considering this first call to perseverance that this book gives us to to pay attention to a great salvation. And so we're in the middle right now of considering that great salvation, since there's something about it that our paying attention to it is our means of perseverance. So let's just begin by reading our text this morning to reacquaint our minds with it. So we're in Hebrews 2. We'll begin reading in verse 5, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people." For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for putting each of us 
into the kingdom of your Son, bringing us into your church, for giving us the opportunity to meet together, to speak of your word, and to learn of our God. We pray now that you would bless our time together this morning, that you would make our study profitable. But Lord, we pray, most importantly, that you would bring us to a fuller and clearer knowledge of our God, for to know you is eternal life. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we were together, we began our time in verses 5 through 9, looking at this idea of man being created with dominion over the earth. And we looked at man losing that dominion through the fall, and then ultimately Christ regaining that dominion by his work. So this morning, as we move on from verse 9, we're hoping to answer a question here. See, when we read in verse 9 that we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, we know from our knowledge of Scripture that the death of Christ and then his resurrection, his incarnation, all his work on earth, is the solution to a problem. We know that he has come to earth, taken on human flesh, because we have sinned and we need a Savior. But I think the question has probably crossed most of our minds at some point or another. Was there no other way that God could have gone about fixing the problem that man created other than by sending his son to die? It seems like there ought to be some other easier way. God, who is sovereign and all-powerful, creates the world, creates man, and that man sins, and now he's left with no other option than to send his son to die? But I think our text in Hebrews answers that question, why it's necessary that Christ should come to earth as a man and why ultimately he should die. In the time of the apostles when this was written, and really even during the life of Christ, the idea that the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for, the idea that he would come to earth and suffer, was something that many of the Jews did not like the sound of. And even we read in the Gospels that Jesus, in his lifetime, as he's going about his ministry, when he speaks of his suffering and of his death, even his own disciples, whom he has chosen as his followers, don't fully understand what he's talking about. Because to them, it seems like a foreign idea that the Messiah, the anointed king, the son of David, will come to earth not to set up an earthly kingdom, but to suffer. That, that didn't connect in their minds. And even the Jews, in a sense, viewed the suffering of Christ as a proof that he couldn't have been the Son of God, that he couldn't have been, on the, that he couldn't have been the Messiah. And so Jesus, when he's on the cross, the Jews say to him, you know, if you truly are the Son of God, then come down off the cross, save yourself. And because he did not, because he suffered, 
in their minds, it was confirmation that he really wasn't who he said he was. So how do we explain the suffering of Christ and why is it necessary? We read in verse 9 in our last time together, we looked at this idea that Christ is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, because he tasted death for everyone. So why is it that man, in his original creation, all he had to do to be crowned with glory and honor, as it were, is to be created with dominion over the earth. But Christ, in order to regain that, has to die. And verse 10 gives us our first, the first bit of an answer to this question. We read that Christ was made perfect through suffering. Christ was made perfect through suffering. Now, when we hear the word perfect, we read a text like this, and we read that God, it was fitting that he should make the founder of our salvation, that he should make Christ perfect through suffering. It kind of raises a question in our minds. Was Christ not perfect before? You see, the text says that God, it was fitting for him to make Christ perfect through suffering. And when we hear the word perfect, our minds instantly think of sinless. You know, for Jesus to be perfect on our behalf, he is a sinless man who keeps the law of God in its entirety. We think of moral excellence, moral perfection. So if we read that Jesus then is made perfect by something, it's a natural question for us to think of. Was he not perfect then before he experienced suffering? Was he lacking in something in his nature, in his being, that somehow through suffering he goes from the realm of not being perfect to being perfect? I want to suggest from this text that the passage is not talking about Christ being made sinless in his nature or in his person. The word that here is translated perfect, has the sense of, of completion, finality. Um, there's, you know, in English we have the word telos. It's a transliteration from Greek, just meaning the end of something, its goal, its consummation in a sense. And the word perfect has with it that, that idea. But even so, even with that phrase, if we're thinking of the person of Jesus, his very nature, who he is, it still presents a problem, even if thinking of it in terms of completeness. Because we know from Scripture that Christ, as God, existed long before the world began. He existed from eternity past with the Father. And his incarnation is Christ as the second person of the Godhead, taking on himself a second nature. But if that's the case, then that means that in eternity past, Jesus could not have been incomplete. And now that he has taken on human nature, he has to do something to complete himself. So what is this text talking about? Christ being made 
perfect. Well, I want to suggest here, I want the text to suggest for us, that Christ is being made perfect in a certain role. And it's a role that from eternity past, he didn't have before creation. But that there is a point in time, in a sense, that Christ takes this role on himself. And that role in our text here is the founder of their salvation. Now, it's important to note in verse 10 here, we have to understand this text is giving us a little bit of a window into into the Trinity. We have here at the beginning of verse 10 that it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So we have the Father on one hand the one for whom and by whom all things exist, he is on a mission, as it were, of bringing many sons to glory. And in order to do that, our text says that he makes the founder of their salvation, the salvation of those sons whom he's bringing to glory, makes their founder of salvation perfect through suffering. Now, what is this role of Jesus being the founder of of our salvation. When we think of founder, it's the same word. We think later in Hebrews 12, we read that Jesus is the the author and finisher of our faith, or founder and perfecter of our faith. And it's the same word here used as him being the founder of our salvation. So I want us to explore this idea a little bit of Christ being the founder of our salvation to show us what it's, what it's referring to when it says he was made perfect. So if you'll flip over a couple pages with me to Hebrews 5. We have a passage here that is somewhat parallel to what we have in Hebrews 2, but it expands on it a little bit more. So let's read through here the first 10 verses, and we'll... Stop and note a few things as we go. So in Hebrews 5, we read this. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And before we should jump here, I should mention what we're going to try to see here from the text is that Christ being the founder of our salvation in Hebrews 2 specifically That's referring to his role as our high priest. Um, And that language isn't super clear just in the phrase, the founder of their salvation. But I think as we go through, we'll we'll start to see that idea here. So in Hebrews 5.1, we have a few ideas, a few things to note regarding, in general, the office of a high priest. We read first that every high priest is chosen from among men. That's a fairly simple thing to note, but every high priest is a man. And as a man, he is doing something very specific. He is acting as a mediator between God and men. 
We read in that second half of the verse that he is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And we know from other places in Scripture that Scripture speaks about Christ as now, now that the old covenant is removed and the new covenant has come, Christ as the only mediator between God and men. So we start to see here, this is simply referring to the high priestly role in general. We start to see how this is true of Christ. He is chosen from among men. He acts on behalf of men in relation to God. And then in the next few verses, the author expands on this word in verse 1 of being appointed. So let's keep reading. In verse 2, we have this. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Now, when we read that, we have to keep in mind, that's speaking specifically of the human Israelite priests in the Old Testament, that even though they had been appointed by God to act as representatives of his people, they themselves were still sinners. And so in their performing their priestly duties, in their offering sacrifices, there was a limit to what they could do because first, they had to make sacrifices for their own sins before they could do that for the sins of the people. So let's keep reading. We have in verse 4 that no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. I want to stop there for just a moment because that's a phrase that we looked at in chapter 1 in relation to Christ being superior to the angels. In verse 5 in chapter 1, it said, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And we looked at a few different passages through the New Testament that take that verse and that phrase of, Today I have begotten you, and applying that to the day of Christ's resurrection. In a sense, the day when he, after going through all of his suffering, is risen in victory over death and over the one who has the power of death. And in that resurrection, he is declared to be the Son of God in power, as Paul writes in Romans. So we have that same verse here applied in another context, that Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by, by the Father who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So now we have a connection here between Christ in his role as high priest and in his appointment as high priest, him taking on that role. We have a connection now with that role and with his resurrection. So let's keep reading. We have in verse 6, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, 
He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I want us to note just a few things here that we see now have Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 5 have in common, some similar themes. So we read in 2.10 that the Father makes the founder of the Son's salvation perfect through suffering. Then we read here that Christ being made perfect becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So into both of those verses, you have this concept of Christ being made perfect and Christ being the founder or the source of salvation. And there's a connection between those two. In Hebrews 2, the author writes it as, God, in bringing many sons to glory, makes the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. But in Hebrews 5, we read that it is through being made perfect that he becomes the source of eternal salvation to those who obey him. So when we come back to Hebrews 2 then, and we look at that idea of God making the founder of salvation perfect through suffering, we can read that as Christ himself is being made perfect in the role of being the founder of our salvation. And his work, his suffering on earth, his experiencing death, and ultimately his resurrection over death are the things that he accomplishes, the things that he suffers in order to be made perfect and established complete in his role as our high priest. So going back to verse 5 here again in chapter 5, it makes sense then that Christ, having gone through the suffering of death and being raised in power over death in his resurrection, that in that he is appointed and and. His, he's appointed a high priest and, in a sense, confirmed in that role. You know, I think we, we know in our minds that there's something that needed to be done by Christ coming to earth. There's a reason why he had to become a man. We may not, we may not fully understand what that reason is, but we know that it was necessary. Hebrews 2 says it was fitting that God should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Now in verse 7 here in chapter 5, we read of some of the sufferings of Christ, specific sufferings, that in the days of his flesh, while he was here on earth, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. We hear loud cries and tears. Our minds think of think of Jesus in the garden before his crucifixion. We think of him praying to the Father, Father, if it is your will, let this, pa- let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And as he's praying this, we see in the Gospels the agony of his soul as he sweats drops of blood. Jesus went through real suffering real physical suffering, mental suffering, emotional suffering as a real man. And if a high priest must indeed be a man and must be a man that can sympathize, 
with the people for whom he is mediating, then it is necessary that Christ must take on himself our nature and must experience the same things that we experience so that he might be made perfect as the founder of our salvation, that he might be made perfect as our high priest. Now, if we're trying to tie together Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 5, we're looking right now at the idea of Christ being made a high priest from Hebrews 5. But if there's really a connection here with Hebrews 2, and with this phrase, Christ being the founder of our salvation, we would expect to find something in Hebrews 2 then about Christ being our high priest as well. Because if we don't, we don't really have a good textual basis to connect the two chapters like that. So I want us to consider, we'll look at the rest of chapter 2 later, but just in the structure of chapter 2. We have our our section in general being introduced in verse 5, talking about this world to come of which Christ has, has, has earned the dominion by his work. And then we have in verse 10 that he is the founder of our salvation, made perfect through suffering. And then in the next two verses after that, the author goes through essentially an explanation of what it is for Christ actually to become a man. And the conclusion of the chapter comes in verse 17. And what do we read in verse 17? Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we have here again, right back in Hebrews 2, this same idea of Christ being made our high priest. And the language of it too, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. That word to become kind of indicates that Christ is taking on himself a role now. Now that he has come and has become a man, he takes on himself a new role that he might intercede for us for the rest of eternity before the Father. Now, as we go back to verse 10, I want us to consider one more thing here. We read that it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And now we read into verse 11 here. In verse 10, the author has established that Christ is made perfect in this role through suffering. But he begins that verse with, for it was fitting. Which brings us back again to our original question. Because we're looking at what does it mean for Christ to be made man, to be made perfect through suffering. But we're still left with the question, why was it fitting that that happened? Why was that necessary? And the rest of Hebrews 2 is going to start to unfold that answer. 
The first bit of that answer comes in verse 11. It was fitting that God should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For, or because, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now, before we jump into this reason too much, I want us to consider this word sanctified. When we think of, when we hear the word sanctified, it's really easy for our minds instantly to jump to sanctification, the, the life of the believer, his practical life. We think of justification as being, you know, God justifies us in Christ apart from anything we do. And then we think of verses like what Paul writes about, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We think of sanctification, us working out the salvation that God has worked into us. And that certainly is a, a correct uh, understanding of what sanctification is. But in this text, when we read of sanctification, that's not what this text is referring to by sanctification. So to see that, I want us to flip over just very, very quickly to chapter 10. We'll just look at a couple verses in here to try to, to gain an understanding of the way in which the word sanctification is being used in chapter 2. In chapter 10, at least for the first half of it really, the author is going through kind of a comparison that's been going about for three chapters by the time you get to chapter 10, a very detailed comparison of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And he goes through different aspects of the law, different institutions that God had put in place in the Old and their fulfillment in the New. And in chapter 10, specifically, he's talking about the priests and how the priests in the Old Covenant offer repeatedly sacrifices every day in a, in a feudal sacrifice-making, as it was, as it were. We read here in verse 11 that every priest in the Old Covenant stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. We think back again to Hebrews 5 that we just read of how the priests themselves, the ones who are supposed to be mediating between God and men, and why is it, you know, let's, let's stop here for a minute, why is it that man is separated from God in the first place? It's because of his sin, right? So to have a mediator who is mediating sinful man and holy God, if that mediator himself is sinful, like the priests in the Old Testament, you can't get super far with that. And so the priests themselves aren't perfect, the sacrifices aren't perfect, so they're repeatedly doing this futile exercise of offering these sacrifices. But then we read in verse 12 that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And this again is bringing to us an idea that we've seen in, in multiple places already, that Christ is sitting at the right hand of God and ruling, and he has received that position. He has been given that authority because of himself giving himself as a sacrifice for sin. Because of him being subjected to death for a time and being raised in victory over it. Now we go to verse 14. We read this, that by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's almost the exact same phrase that we have back in Hebrews 2. 
he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And here you read that Christ is the one who sanctifies, that he has by a single offering perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, I want to stop here for just a second to, we're not talking much about perseverance today. We're setting some groundwork for a few things. But when we're thinking about perseverance, right, we're thinking in the context of Hebrews with all these warnings telling us to pay attention lest we drift away. The danger is always presented to us. But then we have statements like this. Again, think of the idea of perfect as being complete, you know, the finality of something, we read that Christ, by a single offering, has perfected, past tense, for all time, past, present, future, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You know, so in this, in this salvation that we're considering, this salvation that we're to pay attention to, the message that in and of itself preserves us and that we're to persevere in, that message itself is saying, look, if you are in Christ, if you believe in him, you are one of those for whom he has offered himself and perfected you for all time. So when we go back to Hebrews 2 then, when we read, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, it doesn't say those who are being sanctified. This is putting this in the past tense, something that's already done those who are sanctified. This is speaking of our position before God, not simply what is happening in our lives, what we see in our own growth and holiness, but because of what Christ has done, because of his sanctifying work in the Old Testament, it's the blood of bulls and goats that are, Hebrew says, sanctifying for the purification of the flesh, making it so that people can come into the worship of God. But Christ has sanctified us by his blood for all time so that we stand before God holy. Though on this earth we have not yet seen that reach its fulfillment, yet we know there is this heavenly reality that we, in God's eyes, are sanctified already that in God's eyes already we are perfected in Christ. So that should give us, that should give us great assurance as we, as we look at our own role in perseverance. So moving on. Verse 11 is not talking about progressive sanctification, but talking about us being made holy by the sacrifice of Christ. And this takes us to the second half of this verse. We read that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now, many have taken that phrase, all have one source, to mean that as Christ is the Son of God, since has a divine source, so we too as believers, when we are brought into the family of God, when we are saved by Christ, we too have a, a divine source. All of us are sons of God. We are children of God and united to Christ. And yes, it is a scriptural reality that we are children of God. We read that in many places. 
But I don't think this text, when it says all have one source, is referring to all of us being children of God. And I think we'll, we'll find that as we go through the rest of this chapter. In the context, this whole chapter really is talking about Christ becoming man. It's not talking about, there are passages in the New Testament that do this, but it's not talking about our being united to Christ, our becoming like him, our becoming part of the family of God. That's in the text, but not as its main emphasis. The main emphasis is on Christ becoming like us. So when we read that those who are sanctified and he who sanctifies all have one source, that translation can be a little interesting. And most translations will have something filled in there because the Greek itself is somewhat vague. It just says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. And that's all it says. It doesn't really tell us one what, but are, all are of one. So we're kind of left to look at the rest of the text then to find some different clues as to what is the oneness of which Christ and those whom he sanctifies are all of. So as we keep reading here, we read in the second half of verse 11, that is why, because of this one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That is why Christ, who sanctifies, is not ashamed to call those whom he sanctifies brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And then what do we have in our next phrase? So Christ is the one who sanctifies. His people are those who are sanctified. And they all have one source. And that one source is the reason, according to the text, that he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So what is that oneness? Look at verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. We'll look at this text in detail later on, but just to note for right now, when the text says that Christ and his people all have one source, in the context of this passage, the oneness that they share is the oneness of humanity and of human nature, which, going back into verse 10, explains that phrase, for it is fitting. Why is it fitting? Because Christ and his people have one source. And what is that one source? Humanity. So let's just, going back to the beginning again with this question of why did Christ need to become a man? If Christ does not take on himself human nature, if Christ does not partake of flesh and blood, does not partake of those things, the argument of the whole passage breaks down. No longer does Christ and his people have the same source. No longer are they all of one. And if that's the case, then it's not fitting for God to make him perfect through suffering. So in a sense, the whole, the whole salvation story 
a high priest, after the fall, after sin enters, a high priest is necessary. An, an intermediary is necessary. You see it first in Moses, mediating between God and his people. You see it through David, in a sense, as a king. You see it through the prophets, mediating the message of God from God to the people. But in all these cases, it's a man doing these things. So for Christ to take on the role then as the perfect prophet, as the perfect priest, as the perfect king, it's necessary that he take on himself the things that his people share, such as flesh and blood. And it's necessary then, in order for him to deal gently with his people, in order for, as we read later in Hebrews, him to be a sympathetic high priest, it's necessary that he experience suffering. And from a redemptive standpoint, for us to be saved and for us to escape from death, it's necessary for him to die in our place. Now, there's one phrase that can get overlooked here in verse 10. But in a sense, this one phrase, you could frame the entirety of Scripture in just these few words, and it would capture the message of the Bible from Genesis 3 on. When we read over the verse, in verse 10 and verse 11, there are these big, what seem like important theological questions that come to our minds, like what does it mean for Christ to be made perfect? Or things like, what does it mean for him and those who he sanctifies all to have one source. And we can skip over a little phrase that sounds like we know what it means. But it might be the most important phrase in the whole verse. And it's this. That why did all this happen? Because God was bringing many sons to glory. So all that we see in the life of Christ, all that we see him experiencing, all that we see him taking on himself, we see because God is going about the business of bringing many sons to glory. And we'll dive into that idea next week. But before we, in conclusion, I suppose, I want us to consider one last thing. We've looked at the father choosing to make his only son suffer so that he might bring many sons to glory. You could, you could phrase it this way, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And I want us to think about that for just a moment. There was a hymn written in the early 2000s about the glory of the cross. And it's a great hymn. It has some very, very powerful lyrics. But it, it ends with kind of an interesting phrase. The whole hymn is going through this idea of the wonder of Christ sending his son for us, or of God sending his son for us. But it ends with these words. And now I'm loved forevermore because of what you've done. 
So why bring this up here? And why is that problematic? Why is that phrase, now I'm loved forevermore because of what you've done? It doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the hymn. But I think it expresses a view of God that we often have in our minds, that God is holy and righteous. When we fell in Adam, we sinned against him and made him angry with us. So you have this angry God against sinners through the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, in comes Christ. And by his work on the cross, he sanctifies us, makes us holy, and so pacified God's wrath against us and, in a sense, earned God's love for us. That Christ, by his sacrifice, has now made God love us. And if we're not careful, we can have that view of what Christ has done. That you have an angry father on one hand, an angry judge, but Christ comes and makes him loving by offering himself up as a sacrifice. But that's not quite what Scripture says. Scripture presents the story like this. God is holy and righteous. God creates man. Man sins and falls. But out of that humanity, God has, as Paul writes in Ephesians, he has predestined in love his people. And because of that, though mankind sins and God's wrath is exercised against their sin, his love is not forgotten, and because of that love, he sends his Son. And so Christ is not earning God's love. Christ is the manifestation of God's love to us. So when we read in Hebrews 2, coming all the way back to this this great salvation. Where is this great salvation from? It comes from a God who, out of love for us, has chosen us and sent his son to come, bear the penalty that we earned. We worked for this penalty and it would be our due wages. But Christ takes it, gives us his righteousness. He is made perfect through suffering. He experiences the death of the wrath of God being poured out on sin so that we might not experience it, and so that we might be sons brought to glory. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. And we'll look more next week at the implications of our being sons and what it looks like. Why is it significant that Christ suffered for us to persevere? We'll bring it all the way back to our theme next week a little more. But let's close in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the wonder of your love, for giving us joy in Christ and hope in him. Remind our hearts of this this week and help us to turn our eyes to you now as we worship alongside your people this morning.
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.